Welcome to New Creation Conversations, a podcast devoted to helping followers of Jesus live more fully as reflections of the new creation. I'm pastor and professor Dr. Scott Daniels, and I'm excited to invite you to listen in on my weekly conversations with leading scholars, pastors, and lay leaders as we explore together the joys and challenges of following Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, If anyone is in Christ, they are part of the new creation. Old things are passing away. Look, all things are being made new. So come along. Let's embrace the new creation together. Hello, friends. Welcome to Episode 2 of the New Creation Conversations. In this conversation, I'm joined by Associate Professor of Theology from Mount Vernon Nazarene University, Dr. Eric Vail. Eric is a graduate of Northwest Nazarene University, Nazarene Theological Seminary, and has his PhD in theology from Marquette University. In the conversation you're about to hear, Eric and I talk about his most recent two books, Atonement and Salvation, and the recently released addition to the Wesleyan Theology series, a book simply entitled Eschatology. We have a really thoughtful conversation today about why the way Christians understand the beginning and imagine the end of God's story matters. I love not only Eric's wisdom and insights, but his gentle pastoral spirit, and I think you'll enjoy that too. So thanks again for listening in on this conversation about living into the new creation, and here's my dialogue with Dr. Eric Vail. Well, it is great in the second episode of these new creation conversations to get to talk to Dr. Eric Vail. Eric and I have known each other for several years, and Eric teaches at Mount Vernon Nazarene University, and has done a lot of writing, especially for the denomination, and excited to have a conversation about a couple of those works. But before we jump into that, Eric, I know that we have kind of similar backgrounds, but tell a little bit about your journey, um, both in faith, but also what led you to academics and to teaching and what ministry looks like for you these days. Tell them a little bit about you. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in the Church of Nazarene. Uh, multiple generations go back in the church. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories as a kid of being actually in college church in Bourbon, Illinois is where <laughs> I grew up. That uh, was home church. Um, even though my family's from the Northwest where you're pastoring. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, just have fond memories of being part of Sunday school and the caravan program, youth group. Uh, and interestingly, my own call to ministry happened while reading a missionary book of the Schmelzenbaugh family. Yeah, sure. As an 11-year-old boy, I thought that'd be cool to be in Africa among uh, folks chasing snakes and uh, all the things that the Schmelzenbaughs would talk about. <laughs> and that just captured my my memory, my ideas of, of uh, serving the Lord. Uh, but yeah, as I, I went through uh, middle school, high school, I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that calling. Uh, so it was actually during my time at, at Northwest Nazarene University as a student that just going to classes, uh, getting to know my professors, the idea of uh, teaching really started to rise up of how I could serve the church. And uh, it was interesting as I was talking to one of my mentors at the time, uh, George Lyons, who taught New Testament there at NNU, when I told him, yeah, I think I'm I'm interested in in teaching. Uh, He just smiled and said, well, what took you so long figuring that out? (laughs) Uh, Because he knew my my parents were both teachers and my grandfather was a teacher. So, so yeah, it just fit. Uh, 
of and that and that was a neat thing coming together of knowing that I was to serve the church in some way um and just knowing how God has wired me um they just they came together and and so I've just been delighted yeah. to be doing this for the last nine years that's great so as you got into graduate school and those kinds of things you were drawn into theology any special areas in theology that kind of captured you and moved sure. you forward in that journey right uh definitely when i was at seminary uh the idea of of eschatology uh, the the book that i've written uh, started to become interesting to me uh, partially andy johnson who taught new testament there uh would walk us through these New Testament texts that I'd never read in the ways that he was talking about them. And yet, in a sense, there it was on the page, plain as day. I don't know how I had never read these texts um, in those ways. So my my interest there was uh, in eschatology was sparked. Um, and then I also had this nagging question uh, that I left my undergrad studies with of, how in the world, if Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago, how in the world does that ever come into contact with where I'm at now all this time later? I just couldn't figure out how that was applicable to where we are today as Christians. And so that had always been a, a bother in the back of my mind that I didn't get a chance to pick up until my doctoral studies okay. uh, of doing a little bit of work there. But then the main focus in my doctoral studies was doctrine of creation. Hmm. Uh, so those have been three areas of um, my loves and interests. And, and it's, it's actually been a delight that I've gotten to work in all three of those areas. Yeah, it's great. So you've, you've done work on the beginning, you've done work on the middle, and you've done work on the end. So, so we, right. we can have a conversation about all of it. You have the whole, right. you have the whole story covered, Eric. That's great. That's awesome. So because, well, first of all, you know, a lot of folks who will listen to this uh, have an interest and passion in NNU. So what year did you graduate from here? What year were you? Two, yeah, 2001. 2001. Okay. All right. Well, we will continue to take credit for all your successes then. Um, so let's talk a little bit. So a few years ago, Atonement and Salvation, uh, this, this little theology book on the extravagance of God's love. So since we are... While we're recording this, we're just a couple of weeks into the 2021 Lenten season. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've joked with people that it feels like in 2020, we got into a Lenten season that we've never gotten out of. We've just been in a continual Lent. So it's kind of an unusual Lenten season. But it is a season where we think about the cross and we think about being shaped by the cross and not only the cross, but also await uh, the resurrection and new creation, new life on the other side of that, that mm -hmm. crucifixion. So... I know this is a huge question for somebody who's done a whole book on it, but, but how should everyday Christians think about the cross and its significance and the resurrection um, in the season? How, how does, how should the cross shape us during this Lenten journey? Yeah. I, I, I of all the questions that I've been thinking about, this has definitely been the hardest one because typically going into Lent, it seems like, we're putting ashes on our foreheads or we're, we're, we're taking on this somber um, uh, disposition. We're just going into it um, almost like we're supposed to live these weeks in some kind of depression or at least fasting. Right. Uh, and that has just seemed weird as I've thought about 
what it is that we're on our way toward. In fact, it, it seems like um, as I've typically entered the season with that mentality, I'm a bit like Peter that just says, no, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. Like suffering is bad. But this year, I I feel more like during this season, like the person in the parable who finds a treasure in the field and knows that the treasure is there mm-hmm. and therefore is willing to give up all things for having that. Mm-hmm. And so as I think of where we are headed, to the cross. Uh, It's like Paul, I'll just count all things as loss in comparison to knowing what it is that God has for us in Christ. And so as I think about the cross, um, as I think about what God is doing in many ways, I, I see it as God bringing all things to an end at the cross. All of the heartaches and the dysfunctions, the the death and the suffering, I truly see that that is all coming to a head and it is put to an end in the crucifixion. It dies with Christ since it's canceled. And and therefore, we have to look forward to the, the, the treasure that comes on the other side, the beginning, the dawn of new life of reconciled living with God, the fullness of, of God's inbreathing by the Holy Spirit. So, so, yeah, this season, I'm not looking at Lent as if I'm just supposed to kick myself for six weeks <laughs> on the way to cross. Yeah. I, I really see I am willing to forsake all things that are not going to ultimately be participating in that resurrection morn. Um, that's that's beautiful yeah. um i didn't set you up for this question but i'll ask it anyway um are there are there ways of viewing the cross uh for everyday christians that sometimes are misunderstandings of the cross or ways that you would want us to be to be careful about as you write the atonement book you know what are there ways that ways that we may limit our understanding of christ or or the atonement um are there concerns that you have? I do. I at times, and I know I, I did this so much um, growing up, especially thinking that somehow God was after Jesus the Son, hmm. and that somehow the the cross was Jesus running interference. You know that God was ready to to smite me, and Jesus somehow took it. And as I think of the parables that Jesus talks about of this, the the father of the prodigal son, who the son has his speech ready, and yet he's already running out the door without any dignity to embrace the son. I, I hope that we would see the cross as the father, son, and Holy Spirit doing this massive work of putting to rest all of our dysfunctions to give us this grand gift of, of new life. So, yeah, I, I would hope that we would not see the cross as um, somehow needing to pacify an angry God, but truly seeing it as the love of God, that the extravagance of God's love, that God would be willing to even suffer this so that we can be made new. Right. 
Um, yeah, no, that's beautiful. There's a, a line, it's not a direct quote from Jürgen Moltmann, but it's my kind of paraphrase of Moltmann's theology in the crucified God that we can, be, we can in a sense, say there is now no place called God forsaken because mm-hmm. God in Christ has gone to the places of God forsakenness. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, and rather than understanding the cross as this sort of transaction between God the Father and God the Son that takes care of, you know, uh, God's God's anger, Mm-hmm. Um, it really is God, God, the father in the son, um, putting an end to, to our brokenness and sin and our shame. Um, so it's yeah. beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So I, I, I want to focus uh, a good deal of our time on the newest book though, on eschatology. Uh, so this is part of a series that the foundry is doing that are kind of smaller texts on various theological themes. I know that, you just submitted a manuscript for creation, right? Mm-hmm. For the be- so you, you got to cover the beginning and the end. Um, I'm asking, I'm asking good questions because I think I'm, I'm supposed to be writing the one on Jesus. Um, so, so I'm going to need some help there, but, um, but let's think about eschatology and, and for folks for whom that's a big theological word, eschatology just means the study of last things um, mm-hmm. and and where is this story going? And so let me ask you that question. Um, why does the end of God's story matter to people living somewhere in the middle of God's story? Why, why yeah. does, why should we think about the end of the story? Yeah. Well, and that's where some of what I do in the book is try to expand even our idea of last things. Yeah. But sometimes we think of history in a timeline where when we think of eschatology, it's just the very last few things that are going to happen here at the end of the story. Uh, but I expand that to help us understand more of um, eschatology as a goal or, or, or the purposes toward which we're headed. And so then we can talk about the purposes for which God created us and that we're supposed to be living out now that participate in in helping us to arrive at God's ultimate and final purposes. So you ask, can we talk about eschatology in the middle of the story? I actually would argue you can talk about eschatology from the beginning of the story. That when God creates, God means for us as God's creation to live in the love of God, this lavish uh, gift of creation that God has given us. And so from the beginning, we can already be participating in those purposes, knowing who this God is that has created us deeper and deeper so that we can, can again, really already be participating in what it is ultimately that creation will participate in. Yeah, so you're saying something really profoundly deep and philosophical um, that I kind of want to unpack because I do think if if people would kind of pay attention, they would see how important this conversation is. And that is that you're basically saying both in creation, but also in eschaton, that there is, there are purposes woven into who we are as people. Um, in philosophy, we, we would take a fancy Greek word, right? We would call this a telos. There, there is a, an end, a, a telos, a purpose towards which God, for which God has created us, which in some ways is kind of, different than the way 
a lot of ways that we're shaped philosophically these days is to say there there is no essence actually to humanness or there's we get to kind of make up whatever that purpose is and so if i hear you right you're you're kind of arguing there is a there's a, a goal a purpose woven into to who we are and and part of what it means to be human is to move towards that purpose am i am i hearing you right you are hearing me right yes uh, uh, we are I don't want to talk about my creation book because I want you to invite me back. But <laughs> no, we'll, we'll come back and talk about creation. <laughs> that's later. right. That's right. But but the idea that God creates um, and calls things, right? Calls the the waters to participate in the land, to put forth vegetation, and then calls humankind uh, that that we would somehow image God in the world and we would have vocation in the world that we're meant to to live serving animal kind and, and, and the ground in ways that truly reflect God. That's what we're here for. And, and if I can even, you know, blend the two books together that you've held up at the resurrection, Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And somehow when Mary's in the garden, frantically wondering where Jesus is, she actually mistakes him for a gardener right? Yeah. What on earth is he doing? Um, (laughs) I mean, what would you do? You've just been raised from the dead. The first thing you're going to do is pick (laughs) up a shovel and start, you know, weeding your garden. And yet Jesus in that resurrection morn is, is in a sense pointing back to, to what God wants us to be, but while fulfilling it. And, and pointing forward that we will ultimately, as humankind, be caretakers and tenders of this beautiful garden that God has created. So, yeah, we have a purpose for which we were created that I actually think will be something we will be doing forever and ever. And that's living in this fellowship with God and creatures and, 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 and tending it, like truly living our lives poured out in service for God's creation. Hey, I just want to take a brief break in my conversation with Eric to say if you're interested in reading Eric's book on eschatology or in subscribing to the whole Wesleyan Theology series, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at The Foundry. You can go to their website at thefoundrypublishing.com and subscribe to the whole series or get Eric's book there. They are partnering with us on this episode and have made three copies of Eric's book available for free. So if you'll just go to Facebook and like or subscribe to our new Facebook page on the New Creation Conversations. Between March 4th and March 10th, we'll pick three new uh, friends at random and send you a free copy of Eric's book. And so thanks for checking out our friends at The Foundry. And now back to my conversation with Eric. Yeah. Well, I even think about one of my favorite texts. Um, You know, a lot of the lectionary right now is in Mark. And I think about in chapter 14, when Jesus is in a garden praying Mm -hmm. and the story ends with a young man leaving the garden naked, right? Kind of like Adam and Eve recognizing their brokenness and, Mm. and their inability to live in this, but it ends in 16 with this young man now dressed and, and doing the very thing we were created to be and to do and to live in harmony with Christ at the right hand of, um, of who Christ is. So yeah, that's, that's a beautiful image of uh, the resurrection and our call, both Jesus is living back into this caretaking role, this imaging role that, that 
we each have as humans. Mm. Um, so this connects with my next question, which is in the book, you talk about sin as, as discreative. Like that's mm. the word that you use to think about yeah. and that it is discreative. So what does that mean to be discreative? Um, and how is recreation? So, I mean, we've, we're calling this new creation conversation. So um, how does recreation or new creation a response then to that discreation? Yeah. Well, it, it, in many ways, we can see the creative work that God is doing uh, of bringing us toward flourishing, blessing creation to multiply, as well as then share fellowship. Uh, so if God is moving us into that abundance of life, when we choose to sin, we're certainly rejecting what it is that God has for us. But in many ways, we're, we're unraveling it. We're, we're undermining our own character, our own well-being. I mean, so much of sin tears at our, our very bodies. I mean, we suffer the, the sin and the consequence of living away from the ways that God has created us to live. Uh, and then when we sin, we're also tearing down our, our fellow human beings, harming our fellow creatures, the earth. There's so much of our sin that begins to just nibble away and tear down what it is that God is desiring for us. Uh, so yeah, we, we are defacing ourselves. We are, are uh, discreating the world and our, our, our own our own uh, person. So yeah, I, I, I like to think of, of sin, not simply just as some kind of moral wrong that we've done, but it is actually, it's actively doing something else than what God has called us to do and, be, and being the agents that God has called us to be and in the work that God has called us to do. Wow. wow. So, Talk about new creation. Um, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, what is what does that look like? Yeah, so so Christ, uh, especially the early church, God in Christ is coming really to restore. I mean, this is the word through which all creation was was birthed, right? Through this word, all things were created. So this word comes in the flesh in Christ Jesus and begins to heal of us, of our, our, our errant thinking, mm -hmm. heal us of social dysfunctions of how we classify people, even heal bodies to speak health and, and wholeness for bodies and, and, and people's personal narratives that begin to be reshaped. So this, the work of, of salvation and the work of new creation that God is doing, it doesn't have to wait actually to the resurrection. It, it's certainly happening in Jesus's ministry yeah. in his teaching. Um, and, and, and it certainly culminates in, in the new creation and the resurrection. But, but yeah, it is undoing the, all these knots and, and these dysfunctions of sin. Uh, and, and, and I love the way that the, the creed of the church talks about for us and for our salvation, you know, the son became incarnate, uh, certainly was, it was crucified, buried, resurrected, but it, there's all this stuff that we still anticipate. 
that God is going to do in Christ Jesus uh, to, bring, to judge. We yeah. often think of judgment as this, oh no, the, 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 the hammer's coming. But judgment sorts out and says, okay, this stays. Like this is, this is going to be redeemed. This has no place. So judgment is actually this work of saving, um, parsing out that, uh, that I really see the, the work of Christ's return, the judgment, the resurrection, making all things new. We have that to look forward to. Right. So the whole spectrum of God's work is, is making new uh, and bringing all things to fulfillment, you know, that telos idea. Yeah, is, is it fair, Eric, to say sometimes when we've used the language of judgment, and especially I, I think in Western theology, a lot of our theology has been shaped by the imagination of a courtroom um, and that judgment being that. And, and I, I do think there's some elements to that. Mm-hmm. But it seems, if I'm hearing you right, we, we can also think of judgment in the same sense that when I know something is wrong, I end up going to the doctor and the, the doctor does all sorts of examinations to find out what's wrong and yeah. is making a judgment on what is going wrong in order to bring healing, right? Like it's right. not, it's not just simply a, are you right or wrong? It is mm-hmm. how can we, how can we make good what is clearly broken and, and what yeah. needs to be restored? Yeah. And I think that's where we can see through scriptures, the heart of God at work in judgment. I, as you said, courtroom is often the first place we go that we have broken some kind of law. We're guilty now. We got to get bopped on the head. Like the, the punishment is coming. Well, God is evaluating and, and assessing creation and us. But it's not just to find who's out of line to bop them. Right. It's to correct. To, because God, I mean, the love of God wants to see us flourishing and, and means, it, it, God means for us to thrive and to have, live in the blessing. So it would be utterly frustrating to God to watch us just unravel in sin. So yes, God is going to say, no, (laughs) (laughs) that is not it. That's not what I want for you. So to, to discipline and correct and, and, and recreate us into the right pathways. That is absolutely the heart of God and why God would say that can't be in my good creation. No more of that. Yeah. And to bring us into the wholeness of life. So one of my favorite chapters in the eschatology book is on the resurrection of the dead, mm-hmm. um, which if Christians pay attention when the creeds are read in worship or um, by Christians, it's one of the things we confess. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, although sometimes I think in the ways that popular Christianity or the ways that we've thought has not included that element. And so why is the theological concept of the resurrection of the dead, not just Jesus's resurrection, but our all, all of our resurrections, why is that so important to our theology? Oh yeah, that, that is where, since the new creation, the, the, the wholeness of salvation, where it lies. And, and, and like you, for so long, I thought we live our lives and at the point of death, we then are in eternity. We, we somehow are participating in 
happily ever after. But it never occurred to me then that we stay dead. Death has won. Uh, All of the sufferings that we have endured, all of the injustices, the wrongs, even the illnesses and the injuries that may take our lives, they actually then end up getting the final word. And so resurrection from the dead is God saying to all of those bodily sufferings, no, that is not going to have the final word. That does not belong in my good creation. So resurrection is the victory over all of the injustices, the wrongs, the sufferings, and even death itself. To conquer and overcome all of that, to to bring new life and to bring everlasting life to us. And so in, in many ways, the full realization of our salvation from both sin and death comes at Christ's return when death is overturned. Uh, certainly, we have deliverance from the grip of sin in, in God's sanctifying work, but we are awaiting that deliverance from death um, when, when he comes. That's, that's powerful. Um, so, for folks for whom that's a, a kind of new concept, mm-hmm. uh, this may be a challenging uh, question, Eric, because it, it invites us to kind of speculate. Yeah. But what do you think we should? What do you think people should expect, or um, both after death? Yeah. But where, what should we be expecting with regards to our, our loved ones? And yeah. um, you know, when we use words like heaven, what what are we talking about there? Yeah, I tell you, this is probably the hardest part because of um, of, of the the hope that or the, the narratives that we we typically have at the loss of a loved one where we will often um, tell ourselves, yes, they are forever with the Lord, they're in heaven. Um, and so to, to mess with that narrative, I realize can create a lot of uncertainty and doubt. So yes, we wanna handle this delicately and lovingly. Um, but what do, we t- what do we say? I think we say exactly what Paul says, that they're with the Lord. Yeah. Uh, that those who die in the Lord, you know, God is not uh, going to lose us, and we are not going to somehow fall out of the, the good care <laughs> of, of God. And in fact, I think this is part of why it's so significant that we confess that Jesus Christ was crucified and he died, but he was buried. And 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 we even in, in the Apostles' Creed talk about him descending uh, to the dead. Well, I think Paul then picks up on this idea, oh yeah, he, he truly was in the grave. So Paul talks about where can you go that you can be outside the love of God in Christ Jesus? You go to the highest heights, the deepest depths, so neither life nor death, anything in all creation, none of it can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So I I don't think we need to give up the idea that our those who have died that they are with the Lord. I absolutely hang on to that. Um, but I also hang on that when Christ comes again, he will bring with him those who have died. Right. And they will 
receive the resurrection and they will receive the happily ever after that the rest of us are looking forward to as well. Right. So, um, so I love at times to quote Andy Crouch uh, in some sermons where he will say, part of our problem is we cut off. And, and I think, especially for you writing a book on both creation and eschatology, he would say, we have a tendency to cut off the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you start with the fall and you end with the lake of fire. Um, and if you put those two chapters back on, you start with God's affirmation of the goodness of creation and you end with the new Jerusalem descending mm-hmm. and you end with the healing of, of creation. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, I, my sense is I'll set up the question this way. My sense is you and I were both raised in probably forms of Christianity who's for whom the end of the story was about getting out of here and, mm-hmm. and going somewhere else. Or I'll say at times thinking of creation itself, the world as a kind of rental um, that is not, doesn't have significance in the story other than being a place for us to kind of figure out if we're, if we get to go to heaven or not. But if I read you right and I hear you right, there's a role for creation in this yeah. new creation. And our the end of our story sh- probably should not be imagination about escaping or getting out of here as much as it is God's reign and God's goodness returning and restoring the intentions of creation. Am, am I hearing you right? Am I- you are hearing me right. Yes. Oh. yes. Are they, we right too? Yes, yes. So the the creation stories and the imagination of Israel, that creation itself is God's dwelling place, right? The heavens of God's throne room, the earth is God's footstool. God made a place that God resides in right. and dwells in. And as we read the, the, the scriptures, I mean, we get up to that flood narrative and God's heart is grieved of what has come of, of this beloved sanctuary. Right? There's a real mourning. And yes, the flood, I mean, there's a whole lot of sticky stuff with the flood of exactly the fact that God does wipe the surface of creation clean. But God was so grieved that God did want to clean it off, right? Right? To re-inhabit the place and repopulate. And time and again in the narrative of scripture, we do see that there are, are disciplinary actions against people groups where they are cut low. I mean, there's, but there's always this continuity in the story that that which God began with, God is going to take all the way to the finish line. Hmm. God meant it when God made the world. It was not a mistake and it was not temporary. God made a place to dwell with us and God will clean it up. God will correct and at times cut away what is cancerous to to creation because God ultimately desires to get to those last two chapters of Revelation where the glory of the Lord comes to fill this place and God and the Lamb are are with us and we walk by their light and all things are as God means for them to be. Yeah. Cue the choir. The kingdom of this mm. world shall become the kingdom of yes. our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Yes. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I know you would agree this with this. I feel like then part of what we've done when, when the end of our story has a kind of escape valve as its vision, it has, it has narrowed the hopes of the story. It's, it's that our Christian hopes are not 
as robust as the scripture invites them to be. I mean, these are really big hopes about the re- the renewal of all things, and um, and there's something so beautiful and powerful about about that part of the story that begins to make sense then of why Paul can say the whole creation groans, um, awaiting this redemption, and um, yeah, and why. Um, why the goodness of creation is not just passing away, but something that um, it's funny. I, I tell the story that when my, um, my grandfather loved to play golf and, uh, but I think he mainly just loved being with friends and being outdoors. Like, I think that was what he loved most and probably a little competition mixed in there, but, but, you know, he was a minister, like your, you know, your family of mine. Um, and he said to me one day when he was getting really old, he just said, you know, I've been thinking about heaven a lot. And if heaven, if heaven's just kind of floating around, if there's no golf in heaven, he said, I'm not sure I really want to go there. And I, I said to him, I, I hope you get there. And I think I know what you mean, Papa. And I think the more that I think about what God hopes will happen, I think you, I think you will be deeply and delightedly surprised at mm. the things that you love most about this creation being renewed and made in ways that are more beautiful than we can even experience them now. Mm. And yeah. the things like friendship and the beauty of creation um, and even the joy of relationship and fellowship uh, will be better and bigger and more beautiful than, than we even have the ability to imagine in, in this, this moment. This I just have a few minutes left in my conversation with Eric. I wanted to take just a moment to tell you about next week's episode, a conversation with Pastor Mikhail Levine, pastor of spiritual formation at 8th Street Church in Oklahoma City. We have a conversation about her book, Living the Way of Jesus. It's a great conversation about spiritual formation, keeping time, the Lenten season. We talked about the challenges of planting a church, about pastoring in the time of COVID, about what it's like to be a young woman leader in the church. It's a really insightful, informative conversation. It will be available on podcast next Wednesday, or you can watch the video cast on Wednesday evening. But it's a fun conversation and invite you to join us. And now back to our final conversation with Eric. So you mentioned Revelation, so let's get into that too. You talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of our eschatology or our thinking about future things is shaped by apocalyptic literature, both in places like Daniel. There's a little bit sprinkled here and there, maybe in in Mark 13 or in Thessalonians, but Revelation is the big chunk of that. Right. Um, so everyday Christians, should they mess with, should they mess with Revelation? Should they leave it to the professionals? Should they trust the movies on it? Um, what, what should, how should everyday Christians think about the book of Revelation? What oh. world is that thing? Right. What is that thing? Uh, I I think that, yeah, Revelation is, it's difficult to just get into, right? Just pick it up cold and start reading it. <laughs> oh my goodness. There, there are monsters and beasts in this book. Yeah. I mean, are we reading Harry Potter? Or are we reading the Bible? I mean, this is, this is really challenging stuff. Uh, so yeah, to get into it cold, it's going to really be confusing and yet you've just quoted this line out of there of the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ there are also these moments that i don't think you need a background in the book to just say oh yes lord please i want that i want christ to reign so uh 
I know one biblical scholar says, uh, tells a story about a, a lady that just loves to read the book of Revelation. And she says, I don't know what any of this is about, but I just know that by the time I'm done, I can't help but just be excited and looking forward to Jesus coming. Right. So, so yes, if you get that outcome, uh, then I think maybe you've understood the book well, uh, to be excited of, yes, God, may your reign, may your kingdom come, may, may your glory fill this place. But as far as then, how do you wade into it, maybe to understand some of the symbolism and the imagery? Uh, that would probably require that people ask a trusted mentor, like, hey, uh, Pastor Scott, can you please recommend a resource, maybe even the one that you wrote, uh, to help <laughs> uh, help me parse this out? Because it does, this, the book of Revelation has hundreds of uh, of other allusions uh, back to previous scriptural texts. Right. So if you are a student of scripture, you've read the prophets, you have read, uh, you know, the whole of the scripture, then you might catch those allusions and it might make more sense. But without that kind of experience, you really do need a trusted guide. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I've tried to explain to people when I've, preach through Revelation. I've done that a couple of times in my ministry, which seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, now, they've always been kind of fun, but mm -hmm. but in the same way that I, when I go to an art gallery, I can appreciate art being a novice, yeah. but if there is somebody who really knows the artist and knows what mm -hmm. that artist is trying to accomplish and, and what this art kind of means, yeah. I get so much more out of it when I recognize, oh, this art is trying to reveal something. And so having having a sort of expert walk me through the gallery is mm -hmm. life-changing, where my visit to the gallery may have been interesting, but it was was much better when it was when there was a guide, an interpreter to it. But I do think helping everyday Christians realize this is not a book about predicting the future. And if we get the right mm -hmm. interpreter, meaning the right decoder ring, yeah. we'll find out what these future events are. But more as a piece of artwork, a kind of pair of glasses that help early Christians interpret the challenge of living faithfully in the world mm -hmm. and how, and so having that kind of lens and guide to help us. Mm -hmm. and, and as you said, there's so much richness of these various, especially prophetic texts that, so mm -hmm. to use the art image, I often say it's like an artist is painting this, this incredible picture with beasts and all these things in it. Mm -hmm. But he's using the paints that they're using are the words of the, of the old Testament, the words of the prophets, the words of the scripture are the mm -hmm. colors and the art. And the more you understand that, the more this all is meaningful and makes sense to you. Right. Um, is that kind of along the line of what, how you Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that, that would be the reason for being immersed in the prophets and, and in, in the full scope of scripture. So that when, when there is just pleading, nod to a, a prior text that, oh, I, I caught it. Now I, I see a little bit better. So yeah, it, absolutely. And, and I think you've also pointed something out in what you've said of this text calls us to something even now that uh, it's tempting to read creation texts as something that, that were once upon a time, right? Back then. Instead of seeing that this teaches us of God's call on our life now, of how to inhabit creation, 
and what Israel went through. It's not just ancient history of what happened to them once upon a time. It becomes a call upon us even now to think about the God that they were walking with and their responses and, and our own responses. And Revelation, if we just stick it out there as something in the, to the future, I think we miss that it is a call upon the people of God even now to live faithfully following the Lord in spite of the pressures that are on us from our, our, our context and even the messaging of our present context. Can we discern, can we discern the lamb of God and his voice versus the, the megaphone of, of our culture? And the revelation calls us to do that and helps us to discern Ooh, this looks a little more like the megaphone than the voice <laughs> of the slain lamb. Right. Yeah, one of my favorite beasts in Revelation, in Revelation 13, there's there's a beast that looks like the lamb, but speaks like the dragon. Mm. And I always think, yeah, can we discern those things that even look like kind of they're religious and ref, you know, reflections of the lamb, but are actually speaking with the megaphone, if you will, mm. speaking yeah. uh like that like that which is broken and captive and the empire around us. So, yeah. well, thanks. I, that's, yeah. you know, I, I, I want people to love and to read revelation, but I also want them uh, to read it for what it is um, mm-hmm. and, and not get caught in, in sometimes the way we read it in ways that probably was not intended for us to live into and, and um, mm-hmm. read. Mm-hmm. So Eric, thanks for your work in with uh not just young people, because uh, it's not just young people preparing for ministry these days, but, mm-hmm. but a lot of your work, especially at, at Mount Vernon, is with the next generation of folks who are moving into, have been called by God and are moving into leadership. Um, I think we write a lot of books and we think a lot about some of the concerns that we have um, in mm-hmm. the coming generation. And I, I'm not sure that there has been a generation in human history that didn't worry about the next generation. And, mm-hmm. But um but are there signs of hope? I mean, as you work with young people these days, what are, what makes you excited? Uh, what's beautiful about what you see in the ways that they're trying to embody this, this call? I mean, what gives you hope for the, the future of God's church through these young people? Yeah, I, I see young people that are, are hungry, certainly to serve um, what they see as just brokenness in the world. Um, I don't, I don't hear students coming in trying to be pastors of some kind of mega church. They want their own TV shows. They want fame and spotlight. I, I hear them just seeing brokenness and, and they don't know if they'll make a paycheck, but they will just jump in. Hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I, the kind of, uh, just the boldness, the, the trust that they show in being willing to answer this call among uh, population groups. Uh, I mean, the number of students that their ministry is to work with teenagers pulled out of um, sex trafficking or to, to work with, with people who are struggling with drug addictions. There's not money in these things and, and there's no fame and glory in these things. But day in and day out, their hearts just are are drawn into these places of deep woundedness and, and hurt, and they become agents of new creation, of, of, of healing. And, and so I, 
I just watch what God is doing among young people. And, and it, it keeps my heart, I think, young to see these people in their, their wild faith and, and they're, they're willing to jump without even really having the, the questions answered of, you know, where are you going to live? How are you going to support yourself? They just answer God's call. And, and so, yeah, I, I love watching the yeah. young people. Yeah, that's great. So here's your, your kind of last word. Um, mm-hmm. So in your work in creation and atonement and mm-hmm. resurrection in, in uh, eschatology and new mm-hmm. creation, you know, for the, for the everyday Jane and Joe Christian, or maybe even the person who is uh, maybe new to all this, that new in faith, um, what would you say to them? Why, why yeah. get them to care about this? What, oh. uh, why should they not just buy yeah. the eschatology book, but why should they care about these things? What, uh, mm. what message yeah. would you give them? I think day to day when we are immersed in just the things we have to do, that we're just checking off tasks. And sometimes it feels at the end of a day, end of the week, we're just going nowhere. We're not even sure if our work matters. Mm. I think there's a vision here that we can catch that the, the work that we are putting in to taking care of our kids you know, loving on our coworkers, even mowing our lawn and tending our, the flower beds, uh, you know, around the places where we live. There is work here of getting our hands into one another, into the soil of our communities, that we can say, yes, this does matter. I am participating in this life, in this fellowship, and in this creation. That, that God cares about. Hmm. And my work is actually in some small way, bit by bit, telling this big story of life together and telling the story of fellowship with God and neighbor and the earth. And, and, and yeah, these are little things that seem meaningless. But if you just back up and see the story of a God who abundantly is giving us this life, giving us this food to eat and the, these yards to mow and these things to do, that, that, yeah, we are participating in something that actually is of eternal and ultimate significance. Uh, and, and, and so, yes, we do it just delighting that God has given us this thing to do in this life to live. Yeah. yeah. The folks who hang with me a lot will know I, when I think about eschatology, I love the little line from Zechariah where he calls up prisoners of hope. And mm-hmm. especially in this season where it has felt like so uncertain and even times where I, I've even been wrestling this week with in some of the, um, the political brokenness and some of the, the kind of division that has happened yeah. in the body of Christ through these last few years that can be so discouraging at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but being assured of God's commitment to bring this story to, a, to God's glorious new creation ending yeah. Yeah. Um, means I, it, it, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I'm a prisoner of hope, right? That, that yeah. those hopes that have captured us yeah. keep us moving from day to day and keep us yeah. 
um, trusting, even at times when we can't see all of the fruit of that. And we know the treasure is in the field. So <laughs> we can lose it all. We know the treasure is there in the field. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, Eric, again, thanks uh, for for your work with students. Thanks for your your work in, in these kinds of ways. I, I know this is not easy to um, to try to synthesize all those thoughts together. And, and I do want to say to folks, what I love about the work you've done is you, you are doing this so it is accessible. And this eschatology text is not like trying to slog your way through Moltmann's uh, Theology of Hope. Uh, right. it, is, it is meant to be accessible and for folks to read and maybe discuss in small groups or in Sunday school classes. And so um, I want to encourage people to get a hold of it because it, it is accessible and it will stretch you a little bit, but it is not above, uh, you know, where your kind of theological level is. And so thank you for doing the work because that's hard work too, of, of being able to address people where they are and bring them forward. And so, so thanks for your commitment to that. And thanks for your friendship. And I'm, I'm excited for what's happening at Mount Vernon and, and for, um, for our friendship and partnership together. And so thanks for having this conversation with me and, and for you. being one of the first guests in this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It, it's humbling to, to be invited. So thank you. All right. Well, we'll get that creation text out and we'll have another conversation sometime down the road about creation. So Sounds thanks, great. Eric. Yeah. Lord bless you. Thanks for joining us for New Creation Conversations. This podcast is an extension of the ministry of Nampa College Church, New Creation Community Middleton, and New Creation Community Online. Connect with us by liking the Facebook pages of Nampa College Church and New Creation Conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or other podcast services. If you like what you hear, help us reach out to others by sharing or leaving us a rating. Thanks to our friends at The Foundry for their support. Our music is provided by Crowander. Find more of his music at crowander.com. New video and podcast episodes are available each Wednesday. Go in Christ's peace.